God wants you to be spiritually great. I know that might shock some of you. There could be some in our midst who really don't believe that God wants you to be spiritually great. Some people view the Christian life as that which is disappointment, discouragement, defeat, and even depression. But I want to remind you that God wants you to be spiritually great. Paul's prayer report to the Ephesians makes that abundantly clear. He is praying for their spiritual greatness. And what does it mean to be spiritually great? To be spiritually great means that you have been strengthened with power in your inner being by the Spirit of God so that the Lord Jesus Christ is at home in your life. To be spiritually great also means that you're able to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and, and the height and the depth of Christ's love for you. You're able to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. But there's something else that our text says is related to what it means to be spiritually great. We haven't talked about it yet in this mini-series on a prayer for spiritual greatness. But when we come to the last of Paul's petitions, he lets us know there's something else that spiritual greatness means. We have seen that Paul petitions God. He bows his knees before his father and he cries out to his God, God, make them strong. Strengthen them. And, and God, give them the ability to comprehend. God, you have to do that. But when we come to this last petition, there's one more thing that defines spiritual greatness. The final petition in Paul's prayer for these Christians at Ephesus is that believers be filled up to all the fullness of God. That you, that myself, that we would be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's the last prayer request. In the last part of verse 19, Paul says, I pray that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul has been asking God to do some great things in the lives of these Christians. Yes, he wants them to be strong, spiritually strong. He wants them to know intellectually and experientially Christ's love for them. But it's as if Paul now reaches the top of the mountain and he shouts from the mountaintop, God, fill up these believers to the point of all of your fullness. Fill them up. It's a brief, but it's a bold prayer. These Christians, they cannot fill themselves up. That's God's work. We're passive in this. When Paul says, God, fill them up, we're passive. God is active. 
And God is the one who can make the child of God full. God is the one to fill them. It's his responsibility. And that's why Paul bows his knees before the Father. Because he realizes that what he's asking God to do, what this asking about spiritual greatness, only God can do it. Now, technically, we're not told with what the believer is to be filled. Paul says, God, may they be filled up. But he doesn't tell us with what we are to be filled. All that we're simply told is that we are to be filled up to a certain limit, to a certain measuring point. And that measuring point is all the fullness of God. Paul is picturing us as measuring cups. And he's saying, God, fill them up. Not to the mark that says eight ounces, not to the mark that says 16 ounces, but to the mark that says all of God's fullness. We are to be filled up till we get to that point that we are filled up to all of the fullness of God. The fullness of God is a marvelous concept. It really refers to God's perfections, God's excellencies, God's attributes. That's what it refers to. It's talking about who he is. And God's attributes and his excellency, they fill him up. Another way to look at it, what fills God is his holiness, is his wisdom is his grace, is his love, his, his justice. All of those things fill up God. That's who he is. And when Paul prays that we might be filled up to the limit of all of God's fullness, he's not saying that we can be omnipotent like God that is all-powerful. He's not saying that we can know everything perfectly like God does. He's not saying that we can be everywhere present like God is. But what he is saying is that those attributes of God, those characteristics of God that can be shared with his people, we are to be filled up with all of those attributes. So when it comes to the fact that God is holy, God wants us to be filled up with his holiness. When it comes to God's love, God wants us to be filled up with his love. When it comes to God's grace, God wants us to be filled up with his grace. That's what Paul is saying. Here's the measuring line. The, the fullness of God, his perfections, his attributes. And Paul is saying, God, would you do a work in the life of the believers so that they are filled up? To that point. And, and the emphasis and the point is that we are, in a sense, to be like God. The, the, the greatest example in Scripture of one who was filled up with the fullness of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the epitome of that when he walked here on this earth. And so when you look at Colossians 1, verse 19, Paul writes about Christ. For 
it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. Did you hear that? God was pleased to have all of his fullness to dwell in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul expresses this same thing in another way in Colossians 2, verse 9. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he walked on this earth as 100% God and 100% man, he could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. He was filled up with all the fullness of God. And as Paul prays his prayer, he's not saying, oh, be little wimpy, puny Christians. He says, not, I'm not praying that you just be lackadaisical Christian. I'm praying that you will be spiritually great. I'm praying that you will be filled up to the point that it measures up to the fullness of God. That when people see you, they see Christ. That's a prayer for spiritual greatness. So that when people see you, they see God. That, that's our obligation. That's our responsibility in this world in which we live. It's more than just coming to a worship service. It's more than just doing things. God wants us to shine as lights in this dark world. He, he, he wants us to be filled up to his fullness so that people see in us holiness and, and righteousness and love and grace and kindness and the list goes on. I have a friend, and I won't mention his name because sometimes he listens to the messages, but I have a friend that people often say, say that he looks like a former L.A. Laker. And I won't tell you that former Laker name either, because you might know who my friend is. But he, he says throughout his life, as an adult, people have confused him with this former L.A. Laker. Well, God wants us to be like him, so that when people see us, they see Christ. They see God. And that's what Paul is praying for. God, make them spiritually strong. God, give them the ability to know and grasp and to understand your love in Christ for them. And now he prays, God, fill them up. Not just a little bit but to the limit, to the measuring line of your fullness. And the question that comes to our mind with regards to this prayer, can God do this? Can God make you spiritually great? Can God cause you not to do miracles and things like that, but can he cause you to be spiritually great in the sense that Paul speaks of it? Can you be the kind of Christian that Paul is praying that these Christians at Ephesus would be? Can he 
Strengthen you with power in your inner person by his spirit so that the Lord Jesus Christ is comfortable and is at home in your life. Can God enable you so that you comprehend the love of Christ? Can God fill you up to the measure of the fullness of Christ? I'm not going to answer that for you. I'm going to let the remaining verses of our text do that. I want us to see, as we come to the end of this prayer for spiritual greatness, the doxology that climaxes the prayer. The doxology that climaxes the prayer. A doxology is just a short and brief expression of praise to God. And what we have here in these two verses is exactly that. Praise to the God who is able to do. That's what we find in verse 20. God is not identified by name. Paul simply says in verse 20, now to him. To him. He doesn't say to God. He doesn't say to the Father. He says to him. That, that one, Paul said, that I just referred to. That, that one that I bow my knees to. To that one who is able to do. I don't know what you think about or what comes to your mind when you think about the ability of God. But Paul refers to God as the God who is able to do. And I'm thankful that God is able to do. Because pastoring and shepherding and teaching and preaching and any kind of service to God, if God was not able to do, would make it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to serve the Lord. Paul didn't rely upon his abilities. Paul didn't rely upon his letters. He relied upon God to do a work in these Christians at Ephesus. And in this doxology, he, he renders praise to the God who is able to do able to do. And this, these, these words remind us really of what we had in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Remembering that prayer for a closer relationship with God. Paul says, I, I want you to know the surpassing riches of God's power toward us. God is a powerful God. And Paul says, I can speak of the surpassing riches of his power. But now he's saying, to this God, be praised. To this God who is able to do, be praised and glory and majesty and honor. The, the fact that God is able to do is, is a wonderful truth in Scripture. It's a theme that is in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. And time doesn't permit me to trace that theme throughout the Bible. But let me just remind you of an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. 
You know about those three Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. You know them by the name Shadrach, Meshach, and that big, I'll let you fill in the blank. But they were tempted with being put into the fiery furnace. Bow down and worship this image, or else you're going to be thrown into that fiery furnace. But how do they respond to that? Daniel 3.17 says, they said to the king, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, not just simply our God, not just simply God, but our God whom we serve is able. He, he, he's able. He, he has the ability, as they go on to say, to deliver us from the furnace the fiery furnace, the fire furnace of blazing fire. And they said, and he will, he will deliver us. But then in the very next verse, they said, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your idols, your gods. And we're not going to bow down and worship this image. That is their confidence in God. God is able. And, and then when you come to the New Testament, Jude, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes a letter that has only one chapter. Those are the kind of books of the Bible we like. One chapter, we can get through it. But, but he writes that letter, and he says in verse 24 and 25, Now to him, to who? To God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his, great, of his glory, blameless with great joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is able to present you in his presence blameless with great joy? Jude believed that the fact that God is able. Paul praises God. He praises God because God is able to do. In my mind, Paul is the soloist in the song. Surely, God is able. Paul begins by singing. Don't you know God is able? And Daniel's in the choir. And the choir says, he's able. <laughs> and Paul goes on and sings in response to that. He's able. And then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the choir too. And the choir sings in response to that, he's able. And then Paul sings again. He is able. Yes, he is able. And the choir consisting of Jude, the half-brother of the Lord, he responds, and the others respond, yes, God is able. But the question I have, not, not about Jude being in the choir, not about the three Hebrew boys being in the choir, not, not about Daniel being in the choir, the question is, are you in the choir? Can you follow the lead of the Apostle Paul? 
Can you respond to the fact that Paul says, surely, 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 surely he's able to see you through? Are you in that choir? Can you sing that song that is led by Paul? He, he praises God. He gives God the glory and the honor. Why? Because God is able. But the question is, do you believe that? Can you sing that song? Surely God is able. The question might be asked, what is God able to do? What is he able to do? It's said in our text that he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's what he's able to do. Paul says, when it comes to what we ask in our prayer life, God is able to do it. <laughs> when it comes to our thoughts and our imaginations, things that we don't even express, things that are just on our minds, Paul says God is able to do it. Isn't that wonderful? That there's no request as a genuine believer that I can ask that God is not able to do. And that there's no request or any thought that I can even think of that God can't do as a believer. You say, I'm a believer. I'm not going to be asking God to do crazy things. I'm not going to be asking God to do things that are outside of his word. But, but whatever I ask, and even when I don't have the confidence or the ability to cry out to him and say it, those things that I'm thinking about, those things that I'm reflecting upon, Paul says God is able to do it. He's able to do what you ask. He's able to do what you think. That, that is astounding. <laughs> and if that blows your mind, Paul says he's able to do beyond all that we ask or think. Did you hear that? Beyond all that we ask or think. And if that's not enough, he's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Can he do it? He can do it. And he can do way beyond what we ask or think. How can he do it? How does he have the ability to do it? Shockingly, Paul says at the end of verse 20, according to the power that works within us. You see, if anybody ought to believe that God can do it, it ought to be Christians. It ought to be those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to these Christians at Ephesus, God can do it. He, he, he can go beyond all that you ask or think. He can do super abundantly beyond all that you ask or think, according to the power that works in you, within you. It's not some abstract power. It's a power that they are personally experienced with. Every believer has experienced the power of God. Don't ever forget Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. 
But God's mercy and God's love caused us to be made alive and raised up and seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. That was God's power. God's power did that. And when you look at verses 11 through 22 in chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact that God has reconciled Jew and Gentile, not only to himself, but to each other. As I said before, that's like the enslaved and the enslaver being reconciled to God and also reconciled to each other. That's the power of God at work in the believer. And I could go on and on. The power of God is great. But the person of God is greater. Did you hear that? Don't get fixated on the power of God and lose sight of the person of God. When we come to the rest of the doxology, Paul shifts from the power of God to the person of God. And so I want you to see that the doxology ends with giving praise to the God who is ascribed and assigned glory. Verse 21 gets us back on track because it's easy to lose sight and just be thinking about the power of God that's at work in us. But Paul says in verse 21, to him, to who, Paul? To that one that I've just explained to you that is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we might ask or think. To him, to him, to him, to him be the glory. Glory and majesty and honor. Not to be given to a human being. Not to be given to some false god or an idol. It's to be given to the God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul, Paul's prayer report began with him bowing his knees before the Father. But it ends with him ascribing glory to God. Sometimes when we read the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm 29 and Psalm 96, we come across the phrase, ascribe to the Lord what? Glory. Ascribe, assign, give to the Lord glory. That was Paul's life. Whether he, he was eating or drinking or whatever he did, he, he did it all to the glory of God. He, he knew that every area of his life was to be to the glory of God. And so in this prayer, here he is saying to him, to God, is to be a sign and given glory. But the glory is to be given to God, as Paul says in that verse, in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's where the glory is to be assigned to God. In the church and in Christ Jesus. Other doxologies, when you look at them in the New Testament, 
other doxologies, instead of saying in, they say through. If we do that here, it's saying that glory is to be given to God through the church and through Christ Jesus. Paul is not commanding us to do anything. He's stating a reality, a reality that we often forget, that God gets glory through the church. God gets glory in the church. When you think of what God has done for the church, it results in praise and glory and honor and majesty to him. As I said earlier, how, how God has taken the members of the church, he's regenerated them. He, he saved them. He, he took those who were dead and made them alive. That brings glory not to man, but to God. And you think about that reconciliation that I also mentioned. How individuals who were once alienated and estranged from God, God takes those individuals and saves them so that they're now at peace with God. They're reconciled to God. And it's not just a vertical reconciliation. It's not just I'm reconciled to God, but God does the marvelous thing of reconciling his people, his church, to one another. Christians, we can't be walking around mad and upset with each other, being out of shape. The scripture says that we are not only reconciled to God, but we are to be reconciled to one another at peace with each other. And when we think about that God has regenerated the members of the church and reconciled the members of the church and how he's made them a temple that Christ dwells in. When you think about all of that, what does it do? It says that it gives glory and praise to God. In the church, the church is well-suited as believers in Christ, as the body of Christ, to give glory to God. When people look at us, all these different backgrounds, different cultures, and yet one in Christ, that's glory to God. It's not glory to any preacher or any man or any individual or any book. It's glory to God. And if the church is well suited to give glory to God, how much more is Christ Jesus? Paul says that this glory to God is not only to be in the church, but in Christ Jesus. And when you think about the person of Christ and the work of Christ, it brings glory to God. And I don't have time to rehearse all of that. We're going to look at just a little aspect of it, the work of Christ, when we think about the communion service. But the communion service, the death of Christ on the cross, that gives glory to God. That's where those are the vehicles, those are the spheres, the spheres, those are the realms in which glory is to be assigned to God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that glory is to be given to God to all generations forever and ever. Did you hear that? 
There's never, ever to be a time in which glory is not to be ascribed to God. No situation, don't care what you're going through, in the sense that you can still give glory to God. Whatever their circumstance, no, no matter how difficult and how hard the times are, glory can be ascribed to God. Paul says this glory to God, to all generations. That is, generation after generation after generation. When I think about my own life, it's not just that I want God to get glory from my life. I want God to get glory from the next generation. And I want God to get glory from the generation after that generation. And so some of you, you're a part of Fairview, and you have multi-generations. There's you, there's your, your, your kids, there's your grandkids, and some of you even got great-grandkids. But glory to God. Glory to God. To all generations. Not just for my generation, not just for my parents' generation, but for every generation. Glory to God. And and Paul didn't stop there. He says, forever and ever. May there never, ever be a time in which glory is not ascribed to God. And and he's talking about these generations after generations after generations that turn into ages after ages after ages. And he says, glory to God. Glory to God. And so how does Paul end it? How does he end this doxology? He says, amen. Paul said, I'm not looking for an amen. I'm not asking the lights to say amen. Paul said, I'll say it. Amen. May it be so. I've just told you about this glorious God and how he is to get the glory forever and ever. And Paul said, let it be so. Amen. Amen. But what's your response? What's your response, Christian? In light of this glorious, magnificent doxology, what's your response? Can you say with Paul, amen and amen? So I'll ask you the question and again. Can God make you spiritually great? If you can't answer that, then I've just been talking to myself. But I'll answer. Yes, he can do it. Our God is able to do it. Even beyond this. And for his glory and for his honor. So Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21 is a prayer for spiritual greatness. As such, it serves as a model and a mirror. It serves as a model because it instructs us and informs us of what we should be praying for each other. We should be praying for ourselves that we would be spiritually great, according to what Paul says in this text, but we also should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ that they also would be spiritually great. But Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is also a mirror. It allows us to look at ourselves 
in light of these things that Paul is praying and ask ourselves the hard questions. The hard question. How am I doing? Am I being strengthened with power by God's spirit in the inner man so that Jesus Christ is at home when it comes to my thoughts, when it comes to my words, and when it comes to my deeds. Am I able, am I being strengthened by God to be able to comprehend the, the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love for me? Am I able to comprehend that? Do I know experientially this love that surpasses knowledge? Am I being filled up to all the fullness of God? Am I making progress in my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I becoming more like Christ? Is God doing that work in me or am I hindering God from doing that? When Paul prays this, the, the, these uh, petitions, these requests for spiritual greatness, it, it should cause us to ask, am I making progress in development in these areas? And if, it, and if, it, if I'm not, it shouldn't lead me to despair it shouldn't lead me to throwing up my hands and throwing in the towel. It shouldn't lead me to despair, but instead it should lead me to what? Prayer. I should be praying like Paul prays. I should be asking God to do these things in my life. Alistair Begg, pastor and radio personality has authored a book entitled, Pray Big, Learn to Pray Like an Apostle. Fairview, pray big. Pray big. Don't settle from some little prayers that you could almost answer. Pray big. Ask God to do some great things in your life and in the life of God's people. Ask God to bless this church, but pray particularly and specifically about this church. Pray big. When you pray big, you're praying like the Apostle Paul. He prayed big. He was not ashamed to bow his knees before the Father and ask the Father to do great things. Let's pray together. Father, use your word to bear fruit in our lives. We know that the enemy would love to choke out the word. He would love to snatch the word out of our hearts. But we pray that you will prevent that and that you allow the 
the word to bear fruit in our lives. Help us to glean much from Paul's prayer for spiritual greatness. May we realize that you want us to be spiritually great and that what you want for us, you will enable us to achieve it. So help us, Father, to pray big, to pray like Paul, and to believe and be convinced that you are able to do great things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.